number one tonight, and uh, I want to preach to you about three things that we find here in the book of James, um, and, and I, I want to ask you to do something for me. Uh, I want, I'd ask you to pray, uh, pray for, obviously, tonight's service and, and getting into the Word of God, but um, this coming Sunday, we'll be moving from the throne room. We are moving. We are going out, and I know y'all don't believe me, but we are going to move on past the throne room, and we're going to be going into those judgment seals. Uh, in the Word of God in Revelation, and I, I want you to pray. I want you to pray in such a way to where people that come and they hear, that it would almost be as if God places them there in that moment. And uh, I know, preachers I know used to pray that, and uh, God let them see it, let them experience it like they're there. So y'all pray about that, and then also, not to get ahead of it, but this Sunday night we'll be at uh, New Lebanon Baptist Church in Springville, and. Uh, the bus will leave here if you want to ride the, the church, I was going to say school bus, but the church bus. Uh, Brother Brian Barnes is going to drive the bus from here, so if you'll meet here, uh, we'll have an announcement this Sunday about what time that they'll leave. But um, y'all pray for that, and you say, well, Brother Steve, why would we want to go somewhere else? Well, I can tell you revival is happening over there. Uh, this past Sunday night, an 83-year-old deacon got saved. And I don't know about y'all, but when a deacon gets saved, that's pretty good. Um, and when they're 83, my first thought was, is man, you're pushing it. You, need, you should have been saved a long time ago, but 83-year-old and then a 75-year-old lady was saved in the church service that night, Sunday night, and so God is really, um, really, John's been praying for revival for this church for a long time, and so we're going to get to be able to go over there and be a part of it, amen, and uh, revival doesn't come from one preacher or the way he preaches. It comes from the Holy Spirit, so where the Holy Spirit is, is where I would like to be. And so we get that opportunity to do that. And I want to invite you not to say, well, North Highland's not having church because we are having church, but we're just having church at Springville. Um, but um, if you want to ride the bus, it'll be here. But I, I hope that you would pray for us about that and pray that God would move. We went there about three years ago, and, man, we thought we was going to be very prepared and stuff. We left drumsticks. Jacob played with wooden spoons, uh, played the drums with a set of wooden spoons, and uh so y'all pray that we don't do that this time, that we'll have everything. But uh, let, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we get into James. Father, as we, as we do come to you again, and asking you, Lord, to be with us as we go into your word now, we pray, Lord, as uh, Timothy and Paul and others pray, Lord, that it would be rightly divided. God, I pray there would be something that would be good for us tonight. I pray, God, that you would speak to us uh, like only you can. Father, I pray that as we lift up the name of Jesus and we lift up the word of God, that, Lord, as always, we know you'll draw all people nigh. You'll bring them closer to you. And God, I pray that this message tonight does that very thing, that it draws people closer to you. And it helps us as Christians and disciples, believers of Jesus Christ, to grow in our faith and not just to be children or babies, but to grow in our faith and to be mature, or as the Word of God says, to be perfect. Lord, we love you. All praise goes to you and all glory goes to you. Because, Lord, without you, we have nothing. We are nothing. And, God, it's over and over and over that we say that. But, God, even, Lord, the forgiveness of sins, Lord, if we had no forgiveness of sins, where would we be tonight? Uh, if we didn't have, Lord, your grace that covers a multitude of sins, Lord, where would we be tonight? Lord, we thank you so much. In Christ's name we pray these things together. Amen. Look with me at James chapter number 1. The Bible says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And look at what it says, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. He says, greeting. It was talking, we've we got to understand something before you get into the book of James, and this is really not a part of the message, but I need you to understand this more than anything. James having that Jewish foundation, understanding Christ too, and there's a lot of people that we, we talk about what, what they call today Messianic Jews, that they believe Jesus is Messiah, but then you have different branches of that. Also, that some of them are still praying for the Messiah to come even when they celebrate Passover. Listen, the Messiah has come. He has came. He's already done what he came to do, what Daniel said he would do. He was crucified. When he comes back this next time, he's coming back as king. First of all, he's going to come back as a groom to get his bride. Then he's going to come back as the king of kings and lord of lords. He's going to put an end to all of this stuff, and he's going to speak it out. He's not going to have to fight. The Lord's going to fight for us. We won't fight, but he's going to put an end to all of these things. And James is one that, just like Paul, you know, Paul said that he wished that for his kinsman's sake, that he could be a curse from Christ. And what does he mean by that when he was talking was he was saying that, listen, I love my brothers and sisters, my kindred, my nation, my people, which are Jewish people. Paul was a Jew. Paul wasn't a guy that was named Saul as a Jew, and then he got saved, and then God changed his name to Paul. 
His name Saul was from the Hebrew, but his name Paul was from the Greek. He's the same guy, but he got saved. He wasn't like me, named Taco, nickname, but yet he got saved and don't want to be called that anymore. It was just his difference in his name of Jewish and in the Greek name. But when Paul got saved, he said he had such a desire for Israel to be saved. He said, my prayer for Israel is what? That they would be saved. And he was so burdened about it. He was saying, listen, I'd be willing to give anything so that Israel would be saved. Paul was the one that pinned down as God instructed him to write the book of Romans. And what did he say? He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because why? It's the power of God and the salvation to all that believe. To the Jew first and then also to the Greek or the Gentile people. And what he was saying is, is that he had a big, huge, burned desire, passion that what? That Israel be saved, but also he knew his calling was to go to everybody, amen? And so James had that same thing. James could see something as a Jewish man who believed and trusted in Jesus Christ as his Savior, and he had things that God told him to write and to pin down and told him to give these things to what? He wrote them to the 12 tribes which were scattered abroad. Now here's what people do a lot of times. They take the Old Testament tribes of Israel and they turn them into the New Testament church. That's not the way it is. It's a collection of believers. We have those 12 tribes that we learned about in Revelation, the 12 tribes of Old Testament representing 12 of those 24 elders. And then we have those 12 apostles representing what? That completion that God took all of those things and put it together and all of the believers of God are represented in the 24 elders that are in the book of Revelation at the throne room. But when you look at what he's saying here, he's got things that he needs to say to those who were born, blood-born, into Jewish uh, heritage, into Jewish uh, nationality, okay? He had to speak to these people. And so he says that this was to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Paul and James sometimes get this image. People have it where they think Paul is fighting with James, as though James and Paul are button heads together. Because Paul's writing says what in the book of Romans? Romans chapter number 3 all the way through chapter 6 is that you are saved by grace. Amen? Uh, Ephesians to the church at Ephesus, you're saved by grace through faith, not of works. It's a gift of God. You know, no one could work for it. What did he say to those in Rome? He said, you are justified by faith alone. He said, if you are justified by works, then it is no more by faith. Amen? He said, you've got to be justified by faith. And so James comes along, and James talks about some hard things later on to us, especially in chapter 2, and he starts talking about that can this kind of faith save people? Can people be saved by faith that don't ever produce works? And James is looking at these Jewish people that have said they are coming out of the synagogue, and they are being born again by the blood of Jesus Christ, by faith, by grace, through faith, and that they're now living, what? In the life with Jesus being Lord and Savior, and James has this issue with them, and he's saying, listen, you can't say that you're saved and not have any works. Now, you may be a babe in Christ, but you're going to have works. You're going to produce fruit in your life. And when I say works, I mean fruit. You're going to have something. If the seed of the gospel has been sown into you, you're going to show something. You're going to have something that's going to come out of you. Listen, the same way with the baptistry. Whenever people say, well, Brother Steve, I know I'm saved, but I just, I'm not. I don't have a desire to be baptized. That's hard for me to comprehend because that's the very first thing that the Lord has told us that we would do is that we would follow him in what we call believer's baptism. That we would say, okay, Lord, I'm willing to serve you, I'm willing to follow you, and I'm willing to testify, even through baptism, that I belong to you. That I will be buried like Christ was, but I will be resurrected like Christ was, amen? And so that's one of our first things, it's fruit. And not only that, I, I hear Christians, other Christians, especially Christians have been saved 10, 20 30, 40, 50 years, they talk about how everything in their life changed like that and how everything, they, they quit saying stuff, they quit doing stuff and all that. And there's many people that, that they, they're actually measuring up by you and your testimony. And they're hearing you say those things and they're brand new babies in Christ and they've been raised in a way where their four-letter words and all this other stuff that they spoke their whole life and that was the only adjectives that they ever knew, they're actually having to do what? Allow the Holy Spirit of God to teach them to grow them and to help them out. And not only that, they're actually growing in fruit. They're not going to be as productive as you are because they've not grown as far yet, amen? But that's not what James is saying. James is saying here to the church that's scattered abroad, to the, excuse me, to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad, and he's telling them that they are a part of the church now and you've been saved. Listen to what he says in the next verse. He says, my brethren, 
Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations or diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith, it works patience. But let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire and not wanting for anything, wanting for nothing. He says, if any of you lack wisdom, he said, let him ask God that giveth to all men liberally and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. He said, if you want understanding about the word of God, then ask God. If you need wisdom, ask God. He says, but let him ask these things in faith, not wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven and the wind or with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Because why? Look at this. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Listen, double-minded people, double-minded. That's not talking about what you would call somebody a double standard person. Somebody has a different standard. But what it's talking about is that are you in Christ? And you're going, you're, you're double-minded. You're, you're saying you're in Christ or you're in the synagogue. You're in Christ or you're in the temple. Either Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice or he's not the ultimate sacrifice. Why would you continue, as James would talk about, and as also I believe the writer of Hebrews, which I believe to be Paul, would talk about, why would you continue to go back to those things that were only a shadow of the real thing that came? Amen? Why would you settle for a substitute? Listen, he says in verse 9, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. But the rich in he that is made low, because as the flower of grass, he pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. It dies off, the beauty of it all. And it says, so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Now here's where we want to preach from. It says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of what? Of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And when sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. He's saying, do not mess up on this. Do not get this confused. It says, for every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he uh, uh, us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You know, the Bible tells us, and if you look back, I can't remember, it's in verse number 16. It says that we don't need to err. We don't need to get this messed up on this truth that God has given us. And we're going to talk about these three things tonight in looking at the Scriptures. Number one is that I see this, is that a testimony has to be tested sometimes. A testimony that's worth its weight and salt has got to be tested. Um, I, I don't know if you know like plumbing or any of those other things, but there are certain things that you have to, when you fit things together and you have piping that fits together and it has to be tested, pressurized, it has to be tested by the water. Why? to check and make sure that there's no weakness in there, that there's no leaks that are happening in there. And in order to have that, I remember that seeing that we would put windows and doors in forever, and people would always want the houses like just airtight. They wanted these windows that sealed up everything inside. They wanted these doors that sealed up everything inside. And please don't misunderstand me, but when you have that, then you actually have things that grow inside because your house is not actually breathing. Now, you, you shouldn't have, no one should leave a gap that big around your window or your door, but they will breathe. But they even went about 10 or 15 years, about 15 years ago now, they even used to come in and they would seal up all the windows and they would put plastic on them and they would do the doors. And then they would take this one door and they would put this bag system over it and it had a fan that would draw out and they would start a fire and they would have this smoking thing like a bee a uh, beehive smoker, and they would go around and show you where all of your leaks were and where all of your energy was going out. And uh, those people are no longer with us because they got like fungus in their house and they've passed away. Um, people want all of that stuff done, but you've got to have a test. Now, here's the problem with most every Christian today. We want a testimony, but we don't want to be tested. We want the Christian life, but we don't want anything to do with fiery trials or problems and even even into the point where we kind of go and flock to that pastor or that preacher that preaches you'll never have problems you'll never have 
financial issues. You'll never have uh, uh, bodily or physically issues. And you look at the scripture and the Bible says, Paul tells us in the word of God that the body is groaning every day for redemption. You know why it's groaning? Because it's falling apart. Everything about it is falling apart, not getting better, but a testimony has got to have some tests in order to be tested. Listen, James said in verse 2 of chapter 1, he said, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience or worketh patience. He says, but let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, complete, and wanting nothing. What it talks about in that scripture when he says that in the first verses, he's talking about when we go into different kinds of, of temptations or trials. Understand, we're going to talk about one thing here in the first part of James in chapter uh, 1, verses 2 through 4, that actually changes in the terminology when we get down to verses 12 through 18. What it's talking about here is that we are perfected by the trying of our faith. When our faith is tested and put to the fire, he says that whenever people come up against you and People are trying to come against you. What did Jesus say? When people say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake, what did Jesus say at the beginning of that? Blessed are you when men shall do those things. But in the modern Christian life today, especially in our society in the United States today, we think that when someone comes against us, when, well, we think our worst temptation is when someone's making fun of us because we got our Bible with us. Or someone's making fun of us because we're trying to witness to them at Jack's. Or someone's uh, making uh, uh, jokes about us because on Facebook because we put Scripture out there all the time. Let me tell you something. That's not a trial. That's not a fiery trial. That's not a test. There's so many times that people go, well, Brother Steve, I, I want to do so much for God. And I want to grow for God. And I want to do this. You're going to grow through what? The working of temptation trials that are going on. Not sinful temptations we're going to talk about that in a minute but we're talking about those trials and the hard thing is is that in the king james and in the actual greek that's written here that the word there temptation doesn't always mean that okay you're being tempted by sin to go into adultery to go into fornication or go into lying or murdering someone it also carries the same meaning that talks about that abraham was tempted, but yet what it was talking about, he was tried by God. Job was tried by God. The Bible says that God puts us through these trials in order to do what? To heat up the pressure around us to see if there are flaws and to see what's actually in us. Church, you say, well, Brother Steve, why would God want to do something like that? Why would he not want to do that to you? That's to perfect you. That's to help you, even in the patience and all of that. And you go, Brother Steve, it says, knowing this, that the trying of your faith, it helps you. It works patience. It helps you what? To know that, listen, that there's something better than this. The scriptures such like this right here where it says, For I reckon that the sufferings of the present time cannot be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. If you're never tested and put through trials, that scripture really never really hits home with you. You know what I mean? But when you're going through trials and you understand what it's like to suffer in your faith, you understand what it's like to suffer in this world, when you're going through that, those scriptures like that the Lord will deliver you out of all afflictions, that the Lord is my ever-present help in time of need, that where is my help coming from? I'll look into the hills from which cometh my help, for my help cometh from the Lord. You wouldn't understand those trials. Uh, Andre Crouch wrote it in a song one time that if I never had a problem, I wouldn't know God could solve them. I wouldn't know what prayer through God could do. Through it all, he'll be with us. But see, had you not gone through that, you wouldn't trust God. Because why? You wouldn't trust him enough because your testimonies have to be tried at some, some time. Adrian Rogers said it like this once years ago. I heard him. He said, a testimony that can't be tested can't be trusted. He's always got the coolest things in the whole wide world, you know. But a testimony that's not tested can't be trusted. You say, Brother Steve, why would God want to do those things? Why would he want to do that to me? Do we think that we're any different? You know, what do we call? What do we call ourselves? Besides believers and disciples, what do we call ourselves? Capital C, we're Christians. What is a Christian? It's a person to be Christ-like. We are supposed to be exactly like Christ. Brother Edward, what did God do? In the Garden of Gethsemane, what was Jesus going through? He was being pressed. He was being squeezed like he was squeezed in a vice. The word Gethsemane 
in the original language is getshem, and it is the same word for a wine press, that they actually would take those wine, those grapes, and they would crush them on a stone. They had two stones. One would lay flat on the ground as this. They would have a big tree that would come in the middle. The other stone would be tilted on an axis, and they would grind that stone around and around and around and around. And listen, uh, whenever they would grind it up, they would also have not only that, but a wine press, but they would have an olive press. It was talking about being a pressured place in Gethsemane. And they would take and crush them up, and then they would stack them, put them in these wicker baskets. And they would take these huge weights and tie them along this huge cedar tree. And they would pull down on that thing to where it was pressing those wicker baskets to where eventually all of that oil would come out of it, and they would collect it all. That's what the image of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is. Jesus was being pressed. You know, it's hard for me sometimes in church I see people, they come and really not paying much attention. You know, we, we count ceiling tiles, we look at our phones, we do whatever. And then when the trial comes, this is what happens. They start running like a child that's three or four years old, going, why is this happening? Why is this happening? Why is this happening? And when you have heard messages over and over and over about that your testimony will be tested at times, you're not ready. You're not ready. And then we go, did you not, did you not listen? Did you not? Hear the scriptures when we talked about that. I want you to imagine something. This coming Sunday when we get into Revelation chapter 6, how many people is going to say, what did you do, God? We weren't ready. And how many messages have been preached for over 2,000 years now about the book of Revelation teaching about what was going to happen? And people go, wasn't ready. And the Lord tells us, you weren't listening. The Lord says, you weren't paying attention. Did you know that days change just like that? Just like that, Brother Edward told me a while ago when we were eating, he said, it's hard for me to believe that September 11th happened 18 years ago. And it is, just like that. Do you know what? Tomorrow we could wake up, something happens just like that. Something happened personally in our family, something happened collectively as a church, something happened in the United States or in the world. Just like that, just like that. And you say, but Brother Steve, Brother Steve, what do I need to do? You need to listen, you need to pay attention, you need to be ready. Because there may be a trial that's coming up tomorrow for you. There may be a time of testing that comes up for you. But understand what Peter says about all this stuff. He says, don't think that this fiery trial is given in order to destroy you or to bring you down or all that or to push you away. But it is for the perfecting of your faith. It is so that you'll be stronger. It is so that you'll say this at the end of life. You'll be able to say with 100% assurance, what? That the Lord has never left me. No matter what adversity or trial came my way, the Lord never left me. You'll be able to say like Polycarp that was 83 years old when they put him on a stake and they were going to tie him up, not a T-bone, but a pole. They tied him up and were going to burn him at the stake. And they said, if you recount this stuff, old man, we will let you go. You just tell everybody that you were wrong about God. And he said, I'm 83 years old and he's done me nothing but good. I can't go against him. You know why? Because he's been through the trials before. He's been through those fiery times before. Church, we've got to understand that in looking at James, look at verse number 12, uh, excuse me, verse number 12 right here. It says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he has tried, he shall receive a crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to him that love him. The Bible says that God's got a crown ready. He says that testimonies must be tested and that we are blessed from enduring temptations and trials. But, listen, Don't err on this. Don't be deceived. It's not talking about that God tries us or tests us or tempts us in order to solicit us into sin. That would be foolish. And you say, Brother Steve, I can't even believe somebody wouldn't think that way. Well, they did in the days of James, and they did in the days of Paul. He said, what? Paul said that people in the church were sinning the more, and the excuse that they were bringing to the pastors of the church was that we thought if we sinned more that God's grace would get more glory. And Paul said, we don't sin in order to make grace abound, amen. He said, should we sin so that grace would abound? What did Paul say? God forbid that we do something like that. He said, that's ludicrous. That's crazy. You know why? Because God's grace alone, listen to me, and I know you think you're wonderful. And I know we all think that we're the best little people in the whole wide world, of warrior, Alabama and Kimberly and Hayden and all that. But God's grace in forgiving you 
is far greater than any sin you could have committed or ever commit. God's grace doesn't need our sins to make it greater. It's already great enough, amen? God doesn't need us to go out and do something foolish, and so he, therefore he's not going to tempt us with sin. Look what it said. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God, look at this. Here's the key in this scripture. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But if you look back with me in your Bible, if you've got it open and you look back to verse 2, brethren, count it all joy when you fall into different kinds of temptations. That doesn't make sense. And now we go to a scripture that says, let no man say he's tempted, he's tempted of God. In one scripture it says we're blessed when we fall into all kinds of temptations. And now this one says that God doesn't tempt with sin. That's because that's the clarification is that that separates trials of our faith versus temptations of our sin. And that you know what separates it all? Just a few words right here. It says, let no man say when he's tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. Two words, with evil. Because the Bible says that God tempted Abraham to take his son Isaac and to put him on an altar. But that definition means that he tried Abraham. He tested Abraham. And it's good when we fall into different kinds of temptations or testings because why? It helps improve our faith and it helps make us perfect and it helps to make us not lack for anything. But God will not tempt you with sin. And so he's telling you, don't blame God about temptations and trials of sin. Here's, now I'm going to really make you happy tonight before you leave. I just figured if you had an upset stomach about the taco salad, it might as well be preaching too. This is what you hear people say all the time. I, Lord, please help my finances. Help my finances, Lord. And if you need financial help, seek God. Ask God. Help my finances. And then you charged everything up on some kind of card. And you're coming to God saying, oh, God, get me out of this, get me out of this, get me out of this. And look, you put that in your wheelbarrow. God, help my finances, and you go out there and you continue to go back and to charge and to charge and to charge and to charge and charge again, right? You, you do more charging than uh, Douglas MacArthur did, you know, and you're just like, man, you're going out and out and out, and you go, well, God's going to help my finances, and God's going to do all these things. Let me tell you something. God didn't do those things to put you there. God doesn't tempt you with evil. and he, Why? Because he can't be tempted, by evil or with anything like that at all. Listen to verse 14. He says, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away from his own lust. Drawn away of his own lust, not from, of his own lust. We're tempted by sin. Let me, let me, let me bust your bubble. By yourself. It's you. It's me. It's nobody else. Bro, you, you hear this all the time. Well, I wouldn't have said that if they wouldn't have made me. No. no. You wouldn't have said that if it wasn't in the well. Because what's in the well, the bucket brings up. And usually the bucket's in the form of a tongue. Well, I wouldn't have acted that way if they wouldn't have done this. Or I wouldn't have done that if they wouldn't have done this. No, you, you have your own actions. Listen, you're not two and three years old anymore. You're, you're adult people in here tonight. And listen, on the same spiritual side of that, you're not a baby in Christ anymore. Some of you are not a baby in Christ. And you need to stop always blaming the devil and blaming everybody else. Lord, it was my wife. That's what Adam did, not Jefferson, but in, in the Bible. I had to make that clear. I did good, brother. Amen. Adam said, Lord, the woman thou gavest me. He did. Then whenever God went and talked to the woman, she said, the devil made me do it. You know, and then when, by the time it finally got down to the devil, he turned around and there wasn't nobody else to blame. You know, it, it's our fault. Because look at these words. We're driven by our own lust. And what that means in lust is by our own desires and pleasures. We are creatures that love to satisfy what satisfies the flesh. You know, We've got to get over this, that I'm a drinking alcoholic because my daddy was or my mama was. No, because we made a choice. We made a choice. I, I'm this because that's what I was raised. No, we make a choice. I know that that choice that they made may have influenced you and helped you to come to that decision a lot easier to swallow. But in all reality, we are driven away by our own lust. And look at this word. It says, and enticed. You see that word enticed? You know what that word enticed means? I love to fish, right? Angie, we love to fish. I love to fish. When I met Patty, I said, you want to go fishing? That was our dates. We would, well, seriously, we would, go, uh, we would go on dates on a pontoon and go crappie fishing. You know, I mean, you can't get any better than that. I mean, when you find a woman that wants to fish, amen, and, and will eat it also, and oh, man, I'm telling you, 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 better, you better hook her and snag her because that's... But 
when you go bass fishing, there are lures. And when you go crappie fishing, there are lures. But let me explain something to you. In, in February, it, whenever I get to go, I don't get to go as much as I want to uh, and as much as I used to at all. But um, I have this thing. It's called a Bill Lewis electric red rattle trap. And I always hated rattle traps my whole life. I hated them because I thought, you know, that's just the dummy fisherman because, you know, you can catch anything on that. And uh, I went to Gunnersville, and I would start fishing up there. And at Gunnersville, they have millful, they have hydrilla, they have this stuff called coonstail that is nothing but green slimy, just looked like a three-year-old blew their nose everywhere. It's just nasty, just nasty. And you go out there, and the guy told me one time, I was watching this guy called the Spinnerbait Kid, and he was like, and uh, Mike Iconelli and all them, they said, you throw it out there in the grass. And I was like, why would you throw a lure that has three hooks, two treble hooks, three hooks sticking out the side in a big pile of grass? I was sitting there going, this is stupid. I was looking at all these people, and I was looking for cover to throw it in. I was looking for deep water to throw it in. You pull up to the bank, and it's three inches deep, and you're like, what are you doing? You throw over there in the grass, but here's the thing. You throw into the edge of that grass. This is the greatest thing ever. It makes me so excited. Besides being saved, this is, this is the, you can't get any much better. And uh, one little kid was walking around the church tonight with a hat on with a big old bass on his hat, right? Hey, you take this rattle trap and you throw it in the grass. And then all of a sudden when it gets hung up, you do this. You rip it and you keep reeling. And then when you feel that grass again, you rip it and you reel it again. And you go, well, what would that do? What happens is, is that lure stops moving. But then that big, huge, big mouth bass laying down in that grass, all of a sudden when it rips off of that thing, you know what happens? That lure goes like that. And it's like a shad that's been scared. And you better hold on to your rod. We've caught eight-pounders. We've caught six-pounders. We caught some, Brother Edward, to tell you that I caught six of them one morning before he ever touched one. He was like, give me one of those red lures. You know? And I was like, it's the only one I had one. <laughs> He's got one now. <laughs> He's got that one. And, uh, but what happens is, is, listen to me, I do have a point, is that it entices them. Fish will strike out of hunger, especially in February at Gunnersville because the water warms up and they're getting out to go eat. But also fish will react out of anger. <laughs> they're Baptist. They'll react out of anger because when they hear that and that thing takes off, They'll just boom, and they'll get it, and they'll hold on to that thing. And sometimes fish that are on the bed will take something in defense, and they'll take a worm and just to get it off the bed, and that's why you have to see them, and you can catch them and stuff. What it is, it's enticement. It's an enticing, and that's what the Bible says about our sin. Our sin is caused by our lust and the things that entice us. So what do we do? We've got to stay away. If we're going to pass these tests, and have a testimony away from sin and go through trials in order to strengthen us, we've got to stay away from the things that we know that cause us weakness. Things that are enticing. You've got to stay away from it. Now, people today in the church wants to tell you that it's all right to go and you hang out with this one, you hang out with that one. But let me tell you something. Let me say, let me say something before you get mad at me and turn me off and you turn all the hearing aids off and get mad and upset and don't listen to me anymore. I'm not telling you to not be a friend to sinners. I'm telling you that according to the word of God, if they don't keep the words of God and they are at places that bring your pleasure and it starts causing you to look at that to sin and it's enticing, you need to run away as fast as Joseph did from Potiphar's wife. You need to get out of there. When I was a senior in high school and graduated, my friends, all my church friends, I was saved preaching. All my church buddies said, we're going down to Panama City, we're going to senior year. And I said, I can't go. I can't go. And they looked at me and said, why can't you go, man? We're safe. We ain't going to do anything wrong. I was like, I know me. I know who I am, and I am not strong enough to go down there. I've already been down there since eighth grade, all the way up to 11th grade. I know what happens. And listen, so many people come back crying and saying, I need to get saved again. I was like, no, you just don't need to put yourself in a place where you're tempted and enticed. And that's what's wrong with a lot of us today is that we go into these different places. Listen to what 1 Corinthians says. It says, there hath no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but with, a, with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. You know, the Word of God tells us that a testimony has to be tested. But we don't need to err on this part. This is the scripture I wanted to get to. We can't err on this. We can't think that 
all right, God, I'm going to go hang out at the bar because I know that's where I'll be tested at. I'm going to go hang out at the bar, and uh, God, I'm, I want you to grow my faith. <laughs> it don't happen that way. God doesn't want you to go sit at the bar. Listen, if you were, if you were an alcoholic like I was and you are a drinker and did stuff like that, you, you don't go down there and sit with, with Bud Lights and Miller Lights and Heineken's and all that, and you sit out there and you just go, you know what, I'm just testing myself. I, I, you say, Brother Steve, that's, that's crazy. I wouldn't even do that. I hear people do it all the time. People talk to me about it all the time. Said, you know, I don't know. When I got saved, I don't drink anymore, but I got a six-pack in the fridge. And I'm going, all right. Why? Why would you do that? Well, I ain't going to drink it. Then throw that junk away. Well, you know, it's just there. I mean, I hate to waste it. Well, that means you're going to drink it. People do that. They tell me these crazy things. Let's see, I, you know, I, I don't drink anymore, but, I mean, I got a whole liquor cabinet and stuff, and I don't do that anymore. Pour that junk down the drain if you don't want it anymore. Get rid of it. Amen? Don't go into that. Well, I trust myself, and God is growing me. No, 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 no. You're tempting yourself, and God does not tempt you with sin. He said it in the Word. He does not tempt you to go back into sin or solicit you. And God doesn't put half-naked men and half-naked women in front of you in order to grow your faith. He doesn't do that. Why? Because that would be God playing against himself. Satan lures you. Your own lust lure you. And you're enticed because of the way things are. Here's the other thing. We don't have to go. I hung out on that one a little long. I got excited about the fishing illustration is what it was. Second thing is a promise has got to have a purpose. The Bible says in verse number four that it says, Bless patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Look at verse number 12. It says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he has tried, he shall receive the crown of life, look, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. The Bible says that God has given a promise to us. And a promise has to have a purpose. Listen, Hebrews chapter number 10 says, For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. Verse 37 says, For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, look at this, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But look at this word. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. You know, that scripture says, for yet a little while, he that shall come will come. For a little while, he that shall come will come, and he will not tarry. That, that's a good scripture. That's a really good word of God right there, because the one that said he was coming back, he's going to come, and he will not tarry. It's a promise. A promise has a purpose to it, and when we hear these promises, we've got to hold on to them. James chapter 5 says, Behold, we count them happy which endure. It says, you have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful, or what it means, the Lord is very compassionate and of tender mercy. We've got to hold on to the promises. Job had to do what? He had to hold on to the fact that he knew God was faithful and that God was going to help him through no matter what trial he was going through. No matter what temptation or trial or test that he was going through, he knew that God was going to be faithful. The Bible says that. Listen, 1 Corinthians chapter number 9, uh, 9, verse 25 says, And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, says, but we do it to obtain an incorruptible crown. He says, I therefore, or, yeah, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. The Bible says here that he's talking to the church at Corinth, and he says that people are running a race, and he tries to use that imagery or that illustration to say that we're in the same thing. You know, Paul often used things of Rome and things of the areas that they lived in to try to illustrate what was going on. He learned that from the best person of all, which would be Jesus Christ, that he took a parable of a sower, he took a parable of two sons, all these things. So when you look at how Paul was doing that, he was saying, think of the races, think of the, the marathons, and think of the, the triathlons that go on in Rome. And he says, we're all running a race. He said, now they're doing it to obtain a corruptible crown, a crown that's going to rot <clears throat> and fade away. It's Stephanos. It's the word Steve today. It's a Stephanos. It's a crown that we're going to talk about this Sunday. He says, but we're doing it. 
to obtain a crown that's incorruptible, that will never fade away. He says, so in understanding that that's my race and that I'm doing that, Paul says, just like a well-conditioned runner, someone that's running a triathlon, running a marathon or half marathon, he says, I keep my body in subjection. You see those runners, they go out, they run with weights on, they run with bags on, they run with with these vests on. They go out all the time and they train every single day in order to get ready for it. There was this thing years ago that I did, it was uh, the Army 10 Miler, and so I used this app called Hal Higdon, and I I trained, and it would say, okay, you got to run three miles a day, and I would always tell it, but I don't want to. And it would go, you have to do this, and you've got to run. I would run three miles on Monday, and I would run three miles on Wednesday, and I would run two miles on Friday, and then five or seven miles on a Saturday. And I'd do it the next week and go over and over in order to do what? To be prepared, because you have to put your body into that subjection if you want to do what? If I wanted that coin that's on my desk, I had to do that, right? And I even had to run by a guy with a kilt on. <laughs> right, Brother Matt? <laughs> hey, Had to do that. And that's what Paul's saying. He says, if we want to be the best disciple that we can be, he says, we keep our bodies, our spirit, our man and woman, our flesh, we keep it in subjection, lest that when we preach, we should look to other people as though we don't even do it. And that's what's happening today. What's happening today is people standing up and trying to present the gospel to people, and you turn around, and then they disappear or they go into sin. None of us are exempt from that, by the way. Nobody in here, people say, well, I don't have any vices, I don't have any of this, I don't have any. Let me tell you something, you need to be where you stand lest you fall. Take heed that you stand lest you fall. The Bible says that we keep our bodies together so that we will be running the race and these tests for on purpose, for a purpose. Listen, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Here it is. For he is faithful that promised. A promise has got to have a purpose. And man, what a purpose that we have. You know, The promise is not what God has promised us in salvation as much is what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about what the book of Ecclesiastes says to you. He says it's better for you not to vow a vow than to vow and defer not to pay. You know what that means? It says it's better for you not to make a promise to God than for you to make one and it be a lie and you never hold true to it. You know what would be better if men and women wouldn't stand up before others and before a preacher and before a congregation and before God and make vows to one another if their whole intention is never to keep those vows. It would just be best that the wedding ceremony was never done, right? It would be. It's right. Listen, the promise, ours has got to have some kind of purpose to it. We, when we talk to God and we tell him, God, we're going to follow you no matter what. It's got to have some depth to it. It's got to have a promise to it. It's got to I mean, a purpose to it. We must keep those things. Listen, here's the last thing. I know you're ready to go. A believer, and this is very odd, but a believer's got to have beliefs. You know, I know that sounds strange, but a believer should have some beliefs about him. But if you were to ask the most common Christians today about what they believe about the resurrection, what they believe about the rapture of the church, what they believe about the word of God, many of them today don't know what they actually believe. And because we're, wow, we're in the middle of the age of mush God, blend everybody together. We print bumper stickers that say coexist and we put all of our doctrine into a big blender and we blend it up and, you know, feed it to everybody in a bottle and stuff. And that's not what we, we need to know what we believe. A believer's got to have belief. Sometimes a believer is faced with trusting what they believe. I don't know about you guys or you ladies here, but, you know, sometimes I have to refresh myself about what I actually believe. Sometimes I'm faced face to face with what I have said and what I believe. And you have to look at it in that moment because you know why? When things come your way, when Satan's darts come your way, or even testings and trials come your way of your faith, sometimes it gets shaken. Sometimes it gets tough. You know, even in Elijah's life, even in uh, uh, Jacob's life. Jacob said one time in his life, he said, you know, I've been here all night. And he said, surely the Lord was in this place, and I didn't even know it. You know, sometimes in a believer's life, if you ever have stood in a hospital room, stood in a funeral home or stood at an altar with someone or in a pastor's office sometimes you're faced with those things of where you've got to really ask yourself what is it i really believe you know the testing of our faith brings a testimony but our promises have to have a purpose to them but a believer's got to have beliefs in order to be a believer and listen ephesians chapter number one or let me get to that real quick ephesians chapter number one says that we should 
be the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance into the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. You know, the Bible says that it's what? That promise again. There it is. There's the promise. But if you look at that scripture, it says three things in there. It says that you trusted him. That scripture says you trusted in Christ from the beginning. The next one says that after you trusted, it says that you believed on the word of God. You believed. It says whenever you trusted the gospel of your salvation, whom also after that you believed, it says the next thing that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You know, when we look at this, our testings bring a testimony our promises from God and to God have purpose and bring purpose in our life but also our beliefs is what actually defines us as a believer and us as believers we got to have beliefs we got to know that we trusted him we believed in him and we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise you know what one of the greatest things that I can hold on to is because sometimes I don't know if it's you but I know I do go through this sometimes there are some times that I wake up and I feel the attacks of Satan and flesh so much that sometimes you go, Lord, you know, are you there? Are you speaking? Lord, where are you at? You know, and I know many people don't go through that. I, I go through those things. But I have to remind myself over and over what? I, I'm sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. I'm sealed. That, that is actually in the next scripture says is the earnest of our inheritance. It is the earnest money. It is the down payment on our inheritance in heaven. And as much as sinful things that go on here in our life and in our world today, man, it kind of draws your mind off of heaven. We've got to turn our eyes sometimes back on what we believe. You know, as bad as it gets, you could watch the news so much and see death 24 hours a day if you wanted to. Thanks to all-day news, you could see all negative stuff all day long, 24 hours a day. And before long, what that does, it's attacking at what you believe. And it's slowly eroding the foundation of your beliefs. And the believer's got to hold on to their beliefs. And what do we believe? We believe that he that went away and said he would come again will come again and will not tarry. We believe that what? We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise and that there is no demon in hell, no devil in hell. There's no devil sitting on a throne somewhere thinking he's something that could ever take away our salvation and our being sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. There's no words that could take it away. There's no depth, no height. There's no peril. There is no nothing that can separate us from the love of God over and over and over. Church, I want to read you this scripture right here, and I'm going to go back in my Bible and look at it. And if you want to, you can go back and circle it or <coughs> underline in your Bible. But I want you to look at the book of Job. If you call it Job, then you can do good. It's wrong, but it's Job. I want you to look at verse number 17. The Bible says, Behold, happy is the man whom God correcteth. Therefore despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty. Now here's Job, just in chapter 5, going through what he's gone through. And Brother Brandon, he's lost everything. He's lost everything except for the person that come to told him what he lost. Every single time you lost all your cattle. Another person comes, you lost all your sheep. Another person comes, you lost your whole family and your house. Another, and, and, and they were the only ones that were survived. Brother Edward, when you look at that, Job says, happy is the man. And this word happy is not talking about smiling happy as he's going through this trial. It's not talking about the Job sit down and just grinned all day long. What it's talking about is having a peace, having comfort, and knowing happy is the man whom God correcteth. It says, therefore, despise not the chastening of the Almighty. We shouldn't despise God in his testing or even in his chastening or his chastening. Listen, this is what I thought was kind of crazy. And listen, those of you ladies that went to the luau the other day and Patty gave the devotion, and she didn't tell me all this, and I didn't even tell her I was talking about Job tonight, but I heard she preached like, or spoke about the whole book of Job, I think, to the ladies. But it says he makes sore. The word actually means this, that he, he gives bruises. It says, but then he binds them up. And it says that he wounds, but then his hands make whole. And you look at that, and if you look at it from the eyes of our society today, you go, somebody needs to call DHR on God. You think about it, like, what is he doing? He's causing bruises and sticking bandages on people, and then he's, wounding people and then he's making them whole again 
can't look at it that way. You've got to look at it through the eyes of a shepherd. You have to look at how a shepherd would tend for his sheep and for his flock. And you've got to know that when it talks about that he makes sore or bruises, but binds it up, binds them up, or that he wounds and then makes them whole by his hands that make them whole. When you look through the eyes of the shepherd, Brother Matt, you'd understand that a wandering sheep or lamb that would go out constantly, a shepherd's love is so intense and so caring for the sheep that they sit in the doorway at night while the sheep are in the fold and sit in the doorway so that the wolves, the thieves, would have to go over them or through them. A shepherd's love, and that's why Jesus used the great illustration of being a shepherd and definition of himself in John chapter 10. That's why David talked about Jesus being the great shepherd in Psalms 22, 23, and 24. Why? Because that's the illustration that the people knew that lived in those days. They lived around those sheep, and they knew the love of a shepherd. They also thought that a rich person was too above all of that that they were above being dirty and filthy through the night and taking care of the animals and doing all that stuff. It was beneath them. But God saw a little shepherd boy and made him a king. God used the illustration that he was a shepherd, and this is what would happen. If that sheep or that lamb continued to wander away, in the shepherd's correction, he would take that lamb and that he would break their leg, but he would splint it and he would bind it back up and he would take and heal the wound himself. But it wasn't because the shepherd was abusive or mean or hateful, but it was because he loved so much that he was not wanting that lamb to continue to go out. Because why? Because he knew what was waiting out there. And so many times when it comes to church discipline, church discipline is almost a thing of the past nowadays because of automobiles. It really is. You can't even hold anybody accountable for things that they're doing wrong and share with them like a brother or a sister in Christ because they get mad and they'll go to the next church and they get mad and they'll go to the next church. It happens because the automobile, that's where we are nowadays. People drive everywhere to go to a church, and especially in Alabama. If they don't like ours, they can still cross the street to another because we got churches everywhere. But church discipline was supposed to be something that was not uh, harmful to us. It was supposed to be something that was beneficial. And a shepherd would do that. And God says this, that last thing is that as a believer, we've got to have beliefs. We've got to do this. We've got to trust, Brother David, that what God's doing to us, even if it hurts, we've got to believe that that's better for us because he knows better. So we've got to have our testimonies tested. We've got to have our promises, all of those things. And this was what the whole sermon was about tonight. Promises have got to have purpose, and believers have got to have beliefs. James had three pretty good things in that scripture, church, and we need to take those things and write them down. We need to walk out of here tonight and go, you know what? The Lord is right. The Lord is right in his word. We trusted him. We believed in him. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit, but I can't expect to have a testimony if God never tests me, and I can't expect for those promises to have purposes if I'm not holding on to them and I'm not keeping my promises to God, and I, as a believer, need to know what I believe. Amen. Father, we thank you and we love you. We ask you to go with us tonight and be with us, Lord.